This is Vital Signs, a podcast on cutting edge trends in health tech and the people shaping them. I'm Jacob Efron, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nikhil Krishnan. And today we had a fascinating guest in Alanaid CEO, Farzad Mostashari. Alanaid is a network of independent primary care practices in value-based care arrangements like the Medicare Shared Savings Program. Their scale is quite impressive. It's over 1,500 primary care practices, overseeing $20 billion in healthcare spending, and the company's raised over $650 million. Before Alanaid, Farzad had a fascinating career. He was the national coordinator for health IT, among other policy positions, and he still writes a bunch of pioneering policy work. You know, Farzad, thanks so much for, uh, for coming on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be on. Well, I mean, to start, obviously, I feel like you're at the epicenter of this, you know, independent primary care movement. And, you know, we, we hear a lot about kind of consolidation happening in the primary care space. Would be curious for your thoughts on why we don't see more doctors becoming independent today. And as you think about, you know, some of the blockers that are out there stopping doctors from starting their independent practices, you know, how, how you kind of stack rank the top three. None of my resident friends want to start their own practice anymore. I think actually doctors generally would really like practice to retain clinical autonomy in particular, and they don't particularly love being treated like a, like employees, right? But one of the things that's happened is, you know, just looking at it through the lens of economics, the smaller you are, the less negotiating leverage you have in fee-for-service. And financial success in fee-for-service has everything to do with negotiating leverage against health plans and basically nothing to do with the quality of your care, your access, the, you know, the amount of uh, care uh, you provide, the, the, the quality of the care you provide, the quality of your interactions with your patients, uh, or the happiness of the practice. So I think that's been the, the driver, but I also think that that can change when the game changes. And when the game changes and when independent primary care docs can benefit from providing that more accessible, more informed, more engaged primary care, and they could be paid like, you know, urologists, <laughs> then we'll see both a lot more people going into primary care, we'll see a lot more primary care capacity, and we'll see a lot more independent practice. But can I ask, like, if you're a payer, isn't the incentive here to have more independent primary care physicians, right? So, like, shouldn't they give better? Totally. Rates? I don't know if I'm giving you a layup here, but. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, this is, this is totally. So, if, if there are any payers listening, right, like, just think about what you're doing, right? You're saying to an independent practice, well, we can squeeze you, so we will squeeze you. We'll pay you. 105% of Medicare, or in many cases, 85% of Medicare. But if you agree to be bought by the hospital or Optum or private equity, well, then we'll pay you 250% of Medicare. <laughs> well, it's like, what are you doing to yourself? First of all, what are you doing to yourself? So I do think that more enlightened payers are starting to see um, the advantages of having more more independent practices, staying independent. There, there's a little bit of a misalignment, though, when it comes to the, the, the situation payers face, which, again, sympathy for, the, for our payer friends. That's the first time that sentence has been uttered on the podcast. <laughs> I just want you to know that. <laughs> no, but really, like when, when, when you have a health plan and you're trying to sell to an employer and the broker says, well, the only thing that matters is the discounts. It's a little bit like PBMs. You know, the only thing that matters is the rebates. 
it's just dumb, right? But that's the world, unfortunately, that a lot of payers are living in where there's a principal agent problem uh, where what the consultants are, are advising the employers is not in the employer's best interest. It's like when you shop at, you know, Amazon, they give you like, or on the, the at Whole Foods and they give you the discounts and you're like, oh my God, that's an amazing deal. And actually the list price is like insanely high and they just, they, they just uh, confuse people. And, and I think let's use that grocery example. Basically what the, the current structure is, it says, here's a market basket, right? Like assume you're going to buy, you know, six uh, watermelons, <laughs> Uh, four, you know, peaches and, and two heads of lettuce, right? What's the price you'll give me for this market basket, right? And that's what they're all negotiating on. But when, when you're talking about value-based care, it's like, why do we need to have six watermelons? Like, well, wouldn't it be better for everybody if you had fewer hospitalizations and more primary care visits, right? Um, and, and I think that's what these... Um, negotiations don't take into account. They're applying just price against what is assumed to be a standard market basket, but there's nothing in the world that says, there's no law of nature that says we have to be hospitalizing these many people or having these many ER visits or these many unnecessary procedures. Are are you seeing, I mean, what you're saying around the value prop of independent primary care for employers, you know, uh, payers makes a ton of sense. Are you seeing anything change on the ground at all, you know, with, with, uh, you know, perhaps finding ways to enable that more? One of the biggest employers in the country is CalPERS. And they just had a presentation uh, by Peter Lee and Don Boltz uh, as they're recompeting their next uh, RFP for hundreds of thousands of, of their retirees and employees. And it's fascinating. What they're saying is, I think really disruptive and interesting where they're saying, listen, you're going to get a fee for being our, our TPA, you know, for processing claims and doing this stuff. Um, we want you to put your fees at risk if uh, cost trends go up. And in, on the converse, if cost trends are, are held down, then you'll get more, more payments. That's cool. And they've also talked about advanced primary care and rural health and, and health disparities. So I think that's the kind of innovation that we have not just not seen enough of from the employer side. Do you think that this is a result of like the macro economy changing and things getting tighter? Or is it like this, you know, Consolidated Appropriations Act kind of like kicking in and, you know, showing these employers kind of like the deal they're getting? Like, what's the driving force here? Yeah, two things. One, I think value-based care is showing real results for Medicare and Medicare Advantage. So you look at that New York Times mystery, right? Like, why Why is, like, you compare, right? Like, employer costs keep going up, right? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent a year over year over year over year over year. And that has not changed in the past decade. And on the Medicare side, we haven't seen that at all. We saw you used to see that, and now it's pretty much flattened. And I think that's a combination of... Basically, like CMS is not going to pay you more for consolidation, uh, A, and, and B, um, the, the push to value-based care. So I think that's, that's one thing. And you see more and more uh, payers and employers talking about value-based care, but they still are not. Um, we don't have the same sort of sophistication around value-based contracting for commercial lives. That's, that's, uh, that's one factor. The other factor is, you know, the Winston Churchill quote, which is, yeah, Americans always do the right thing after they've exhausted all other possibilities. 
It does feel like we've exhausted all other possibilities. All other possibilities, <laughs> right? It's like, hey, let's uh, let's do high deductible plans. Like that'll fix it. And like we can't squeeze any more out of that, you know, consumer driven healthcare. You know, like it's been terrible. Like just shoving more and more of the costs onto the employees. Like you can't, you just can't do that anymore. On that note, a little bit about the, like Medicare. Say, obviously, I think a lot of a lot of people have read this article now around the flat costs in Medicare that were predicted to go up. There's been obviously a ton of different experimentation on the Medicare side, right? I know you you all really focus on MSSP. Um, there's a bunch of other programs. Like, I'm I'm now with like CMMI trying to focus a lot of the programs into like a handful of them. Where are we at right now in terms of like what is what actually works in value based care based on like what we've learned so far? Yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a really great way of framing it as is what have we learned? Um, and what we have learned is that what works is giving primary care accountability for total cost of care. That's what works. A lot of the other models, whether it's voluntary specialist bundles, whether it's, you know, just paying for more primary care, um, which is a good thing, but it doesn't save money. Uh, and in CBC, CPC plus, PCMH, um, probably making care primary, except when you also link it to total cost of care. When you do link more primary care to total cost of care, it works. And one thing that I think people are probably confused by, right? Like in the New York Times, you'll see like Medicare costs have flattened. And then you also read like, you know, CBO says CMMI hasn't saved money. Right. And people have this cognitive dissonance because they don't understand the different role. And this is like so terribly like policy weedy in some ways. But fundamentally, like we have the Center for Medicare that actually runs permanent programs that are part of the Medicare landscape that affect many, many, many more people than these experiments over here on CMMI. Right. And the Medicare Shared Savings Program, which was established in law, is producing billions of dollars of savings every single year, right? But that, that, like, CBO wasn't talking about that. They were talking about over here. And the whole point of the Innovation Center was test stuff. If it works, then pull them over into the permanent program. And so I think the, the net effect of that, two things that this kind of CBO, um, the interpretation of in the public realm around CMMI gets wrong is, one, looking at CMMI as being equivalent to value-based care, whereas actually, like, the, the, the action is over here on the permanent program. 11 million people, 30, 40% of, um, of practices are in already the MSSP, and it's working. It's higher quality and it's lower cost. Um, so that attention, you know, being disproportionately paid to the CMMI side of the house. And the second is not understanding that if something is successful, it's going to graduate out of CMMI and it's going to move over into the permanent program. And so uh, so I think uh, that's how I would say, what have we learned? We've learned giving primary care accountability, total cost of care works. And the biggest place where we're doing that is in the Medicare Shared Savings Program. I think it's, it's probably a good place to contextualize just, you know, the way Allidade kind of works with these practices, what's kind of driven this first generation of, of savings. Obviously, you, you guys have, have generated some really tremendous savings to start. And then also, as you look out for some of these practices that uh, that have done really well in this first wave of, of what you guys offer, you know, how do you think about where future savings might come from? I mean, is it just, is this kind of the level and, and it's just about attaining that or is there, you know, buckets 
four through six that you haven't gone after yet that you feel like could drive further savings in these primary care practices? This is the eloquent way of saying, what does Alidane do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Long-winded or eloquent, take your pick. Yeah. So before I started Alidaid, I left federal service where I was U.S. National Coordinator for Health IT, and I went to Brookings for nine months. And I was like, what is this thing? This physician-led ACOs makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and we held conferences. We had a learning and action network, and we published a toolkit. It's on the internet, right? A toolkit for value-based care. And it's like everything that is obvious that you would do, right? Like you would make sure you give patients primary care and at the point of care, you would know what's going on with them. And when they have an unfortunate thing, you follow up with them on care transitions and you refer them to the right places. It's the same stuff. There's no secret sauce. What's secret sauce about it is how do you do that in a way that can scale? How do you do that in a way that works in Mississippi and in West Virginia and in Utah and in California and in Delaware? Um, and the answer to that and what's, I think, been kind of how we've operated um, is by having really um, great technology that we've had to build from the ground up that helps guide the practices and the behavior change that creates the sustained new workflows and habits coupled with a new business model. So being able to give scale to contracting for, you know, we're going to add 50 new value-based contracts this year uh, that are available to our practices. Uh, and then coupled with coaching to help make that transition, um, actual transformation in their practices, workflows, and fit the the new model into the way that they're the way that they're operating. So that's what we do. In terms of the, the other part of your question was where are the savings coming from and where are we going? And I would say, you know, it's not uh, like you said these great savings. It's two percent. Like we got two percent on average two and a half percent savings in the first year. But then next year it's four percent. And then the next year it's six percent. And then next year it's eight percent. And then it's ten percent. So we're now, you know, in our longest running cohort, we're at fourteen percent lower total cost of care. Which is pretty good considering that all of the primary care payments for those payments is like seven percent of the cost of care. Right. So this is the definition of leverage, right? You take seven percent of the cost of care you add resources and technology and right, incentives to them, and they reduce total cost of care by 14%. That's massive, right? But it takes six, seven years. You know, just to contextualize for our listeners, I mean, I think you announced at the Series F, you guys are managing like $20 billion in spend, right? The patients. That's spend. right. Yeah, it's not a small number of patients. We have uh, in the Medicare Short Savings Program, the results that just came out, uh, we're 7% of the population in the Medicare Short Savings Program. So nothing, but we're five out of the top 10 ACOs by savings rate. Um, and that's just applying consistently what we know works, which is more primary care. And what you then get is lower ER visits, more primary care, less ER, fewer hospitalizations, and therefore fewer post-acute and therefore fewer complications. That's been the main way we've gotten savings. It hasn't been a site of service or referral management. Um, that I think is the next unlock. If you ask me over the next five or yeah. 10 years, it's having enough value-based partners in the ecosystem where it's not just us doing what we do with primary care or with wraparounds, but it's 
actually having an ecosystem, a value-based care ecosystem that we can help plug into and coordinate. It's super interesting. Like, what, what do you think that ultimately looks like? I mean, obviously, I could imagine one lighter touch version that's just, you know, referrals to high quality, lower cost providers. You could imagine deep integrations with your like, this is the go to, you know, in this area, our go to cardiology partner or and we have deep, you know, how, how do you think about what that might look like for Alidade? I think that is the question that policymakers are grappling with right now. As I said, the evidence is clear. What works is giving primary care accountability for total cost of care. Now the question is, well, how do, how do from a policy standpoint, how do we um, bring specialists into the fold? Do we do it directly with them, as in the oncology care model, uh, or as bundles, or do we give these risk-taking primary care the tools to manage and coordinate with downstream care? And that's this, these ideas around virtual bundles, I think, uh, is basically easing the contracting and having a you know objective third party that can reduce the friction of negotiations between risk-taking primary care and downstream groups. Right. And, and do you need to wait on regulation for that, or, or could you just kind of you know because you're you're you know have a fair amount of uh, risk that you guys take on yourselves? Could you just create some of those arrangements with you know with some of the specialists? We are doing that to some extent, but there's a lot of overhead to negotiating in every region with a different, right, subscale specialist group and all the questions around, well, is this fair? What's the benchmark? What's the trend, right? So I actually think it's a good idea. We'll see how it gets implemented, but it's a good idea to have a common kind of fair uh, third-party, you know, um, agreed-upon source of of, of truth for, for how those contracts could be laid out. So if I'm like an independent primary care practice and we start sign up, sign up for Alidade. Exactly. (laughs) So let's say in this theoretical world where I'm an independent primary care practice. um, Have you signed up with Alidade yet? I've now signed up with Alidade. Oh, good. Well, then you're set. We we have become friends at this point. Um, (laughs) Can you walk me through like what happens at that point? Right. Alidade comes in. Like, what is changing? Like, are you integrating with the EHR? Like, what's actually changing in the practice workflows and, and all that kind of stuff on, like, a day-to-day level? Yeah. Um, so, yes, the, the first thing is we will integrate with your practice management system and your EHR. And when you see patients, um, there's all this stuff, great information that we have for you that you didn't have before. Because we're bringing not just what's in your EHR, but we're bringing what's in the payer claims what's in the hospital ADT feeds, what's the SureScripts data feed, what's in the LabQuest and LabCore data feed. So when you're seeing the patient, for patients who are in risk-based contracts, there's going to be this rich additional information that you wished you would have for all your patients, right? Which is, did they or didn't they fill the prescription? Like, you're, how can you provide primary care to a patient and not know if they're filling their prescriptions? That's a pretty important piece of knowledge, right? Uh, you'll know what are, um, what are care gaps, uh, that they have, like, have they gotten their clinical preventive services either from you or from somebody else? And if from somebody else, where did they get it? When did they get it? What did they get? Right? Um, you'll know if they've had visits to the ER. And look, these are the diagnoses that someone else has given the patient that you don't uh, you don't know about. Like, do they indeed have whatever uh, plaque psoriasis? So those are the those are some of the uh, some of the, the the immediate benefits that they see to primary care is just being more informed. The second thing we'll do is we'll say, look, 
Um, there are patients who you see all the time, and then there are other patients who really need you who you have not seen. And you don't really have, in most normal primary care practices, they don't have systems to know who isn't here. They have systems to know who is here, but they don't have systems to know who isn't here. And so we'll give their scheduler a list of like, if you're going to call 10 patients in to bring them in for an appointment, these are the 10 patients who a visit with primary care will have the biggest impact on their health. So that proactive outreach, that's the second thing that changes. And it's really like, it's all built into the tool. So it's like you open up the tool and it says, here's your wellness work list. Like go call that list. Here's your ED follow-up list, right? Here's the people who've been in the ER or been in the hospital within 24 to 48 hours. We agreed that we have a compact that you've agreed with all these other practices that we're all going to do this thing. We're going to call patients within 48 hours and we're going to see them within seven to 14 days. Um, and then there are, uh, so those are the main, you know, there's a workflow for a scheduler, which is wellness visit. There's a workflow for uh, the nurse clinical person, which is the ED follow-ups. There's a workflow for the doc or uh, advanced uh, practitioner, which is here's look at, look, just look at this information um, at the point of care when you see the patient. And then there's a fourth axis, which we've now introduced into our, what we call core four, which is there are some small number of patients who have super high risk for something, right? They are at risk of crashing into dialysis. They're at risk of making a complex end of life care decision. Refer those out to people who specialize in doing nothing but that. I guess from, from everything you've learned from doing these types of models, like, do you think they work, they'll work in Medicaid? The challenge with Medicaid, there's no question in my mind. And look, like duels, it works with duels, right? Totally. In fact, it works really well with duels, particularly with our community health center partners who are super successful in, in the Medicare Shared Savings Program. The challenge with pure Medicaid, and first of all, there's like lots of different subgroups of Medicaid patients, but as a generality, I think more primary care that is targeted in these ways is good for everybody. But the challenge with Medicaid is you don't get to keep the patient uh, for very long. So with Medicare, these are your primary care practices patients and they'll have Medicare, um, either Medicare Advantage or traditional Medicare for the rest of their lives. With Medicaid, not only do the poor patients cycle in and out, but that cycling in and out, doesn't it, they're treated honestly so disrespectfully in terms of who they're assigned from a primary care perspective and uh, whether they're put back in the same health plan or a different health plan. And so attribution and being able to maintain attribution over a period of years is at the heart of primary care-based value-based care. And that's the, that's the challenge that state Medicaid directors who want to earnestly want to see more value-based care need to be paying more attention to. One thing I'm struck by is I feel like you're, you're this big success story uh, in, in the health tech world, and I feel like have inspired a bunch of, of other folks going after this market. And so I think, you know, relative to when you started, I feel like it's gotten, you know, a bit more crowded. You know, other folks are going after risk in the, in the Medicare population. And, you know, sometimes to get into the market, they'll do things like guarantee, you know, cost savings for, for primary care docs in, in the first years, or it's just getting a lot, there's a lot more noise in the market. And so I'm curious, one, like, you know, what you're seeing on the ground and how competitive has it become to, you know, acquire new practices just given all these new entrants? Also, I assume the number of new independent primary care practices is like fixed or declining. So like the number that you can work with, I assume, between all of them has gotten more competitive. I think what we are seeing is more consolidation of 
some smaller practices into bigger practices. Hospital consolidation has pretty much flattened out. But the, the main thing is we are, I don't know, 5% of the independent primary care market, say, maybe, maybe now 7%. Everybody else put together is maybe 5 to 6% which means like there's there's like 88% to go get. So we don't right now, um, we're just not seeing that, that competition is what we lose practices to in the sales process or in the you know, outreach process. What we lose practices to is not yet. It's not yeah. that they're gonna go with somebody else. It's that they're just, they're just not ready to, to you know, make that decision. And I think um, the more evidence we have, the more established we are in their communities. Uh, and, you know, one of the secrets to getting to 90% penetration of EHRs was the bully pulpit and creating that sense of inevitability, right? Um, and, and like there's one track, right? There aren't yeah. 12 tracks. There's one track. It's meaningful use. It's certified EHRs. And it's happening. And if you come now, it's, it'll be better for you than if you wait. And that's how within five years, we went from 9 to 90% of fundamental transformation in how care was delivered. So what pushes practices today to like switch to you now, right? I assume there's an early adopter cohort that's just like interested in the experimentation. Is our practices joining now because they like see their friends' practices getting bought up by private equity and they're just like, I just like can't do that. Like what's actually the thing that shifts the conversation with practices that maybe said no to you at first and then have joined subsequently. Yeah, there's, um, there are three different motivations that I think all of us have to different degrees uh, within us. One is the, you know, fear, right? And, and there are people who are clearly who, who feel like, I just, I can't, I need help. I need to be part of something bigger than myself, right? I can't, I'm, I'm afraid of all the change that's coming. I'm afraid of these health plans, things that are happening. I'm afraid of the regulations that are happening. And I need someone who has my back. You find during COVID, nobody, nobody had their back. No one cared, right? They were as frontline as any hospital. And, and like, there was no one getting PPE for them. There was no one getting vaccine for them. There was no one giving, you know, uh, supporting them during this transition. And we were there for them. And so I think that is a big deal, actually, having someone who has your back um, and, and, but allows you to retain your autonomy. So that's, that's the, the fear uh, one. The second is, is, is love, right? Like they want to take the kind of care we're describing resonates with them. They know that it's better to be able to spend that extra 20 minutes with a patient who really needs it. And they also know that the current fee-for-service system makes that really hard to do. And so if I say to them, look, by spending that extra 20 minutes with the patient and keeping them out of the ER, that's a $600 benefit to you and to the patient and to society, then they love that, right? So there are a group of primary care providers who are primarily motivated by that, but I would say all primary care providers are somewhat motivated by knowing deep down that it's actually better care for, for the patients. 
And then the third part is the most obvious one, which is you'll make more money. You don't have to pay us anything. And here's the evidence that over the course of two, three, four, five years, you're going to increase instead of a 2% bump to your Medicare fee schedule or whatever, like you're going to be paid 50% more or 100% more. So those are the three reasons why what motivates practices to join. So one thing that um, you guys announced, I think maybe earlier this year, maybe last year, is you have the like Allidade First program, the residence program. Uh, I always thought that I thought it was very cool. I always thought, you know, um, having more variety, I think, of the types of residencies that people can choose from is great. Um, but I'm just curious, like, first of all, like what actually goes into running a program like that? And obviously, like, how's it going? Because I would love, you know, other companies that do care delivery or work with practices in some capacity to think about what it might look like to to get into something like training. So I'm just curious, like, what that's been like um, since you've launched it. Yeah, so the Allity First program uh, helps provide funding for uh, family medicine right now, residents who uh, are willing to, like, in addition to their residency program, spend some time with us on learning about population health and, and rounding uh, with um, spending some time with independent primary care practices doing value-based care. And the hope uh, is that they will then see, uh, it's just exposure, right? Like when I did residency in internal medicine, it was all hospital. It was all hospital. And I didn't really understand the joys of uh, practice. And so we believe that exposing uh, these residents to what, what running your own uh, practice in a value-based model is, will actually lead them to potentially have a different career path. Um, and I've, I've loved it. I mean, we do, um, I just, I was just uh, Saturday a couple of weeks ago, met with the, the, our first cohort, and they are just so full of, of life and possibilities and opportunities and passion. So I think that's for, like, for a lot of people in startups. They like join a startup, they see what actually goes on in the background of doing it and what's fun about it, if it's for them, et cetera. And then, you know, it makes it a little bit easier to go start your own thing later, which I assume is a little bit about, you know, the goal of the program itself. Um, but so, like, what, you know, are they are they um, helping the clinics out on the clinical side? Or are they do, doing mostly, like, product op stuff? Like, what is their actual, what does the program actually look like for them on a day-to-day? It, it, it's really, the, the goal is to um, round out their education rather than them providing you know concrete service on the on the care delivery side the emphasis is is them seeing what it's like doing some clinical work but um uh really focusing on the population health and value-based care aspects of these kind of workflows that i described yeah i feel like especially now when i talk to my resident friends a lot of them you know i think they are a little jaded about doing only clinical work for the rest of their careers. And it's been cool to see, you know, even I think Oak Street also has like a rotational program for, uh, I think maybe NPs or nurses. Um, But it's cool to see kind of this like more varied uh, clinical, these very clinical paths for people who are like, I want to spend maybe a portion doing practice. I want to learn how this other part works. And And, um, and for for a certain kind of person, you know, setting a goal like we're going to improve our blood pressure control rates and then thinking from a systems point of view around quality improvement around that not just like oh i'm i was bad like i forgot you know 
but actually like what are the systems we can introduce to improve say blood pressure control which is the thing we can do to save the most lives in clinical medicine um and then tracking that and and iterating and learning and trying different things like that's tremendously gratifying you know we always like to end our conversations with a quick fire round where we ask you some uh some some questions to get your take and so to start it off we always ask our guests um What's one thing that's overhyped and underhyped in health tech right now? I think value-based care is still underhyped at this point, right? I think we're in the we're in the in some ways in the trough of disillusionment, like <laughs> coming up where there's a lot more evidence for its um, effectiveness than I think is is understood. Um, so I think uh, that's underhyped. What's overhyped? I think hospitals are overhyped. Every conversation is in healthcare and and in health tech and you know startups or whatever. Like there really is this perception that hospitals are the center of the universe, and I I don't I don't think that's true. Are you gonna Are you guys gonna start an Allidade hospital at some point? I think there's something to be done with rural hospitals, converting rural hospitals to value based care entities. But maybe that'll be that'll be some project I consult on. I told someone that you were going to be on the podcast and they said, I have to ask you about uh, fun payer contracting stories and left it open-ended at that. So do you have any, any, any good ones uh, that you can share for, for the audience? In their words, they said a marathon payer contracting stories. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, we, <laughs> we <laughs> there, was, uh, there was one payer contracting uh, uh, that we were, we made maybe the mistake of um, trying to do the red lines uh, together with all the lawyers and the business people in the room together uh, instead of the passing things back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Well, you did this and live. Live. Oh, wow. <laughs> we, literally, we literally were like, you know what? Let's just get in a room together oh, and we'll just God. make the decisions they're right there and so we we got it you know we had our lawyers and they had their lawyers and we had the business owners and it was just like line by line by line red line by red line by red line by red line and it almost broke us but we were we were like we were in there and it's like midnight and then it's 1 a.m and then it's 2 a.m and they they had turned off the ac in the building and so it's like so hot. Oh so like God. I went and, and like like the bow tie is coming off. No, no, the bow tie stayed on, but I, <laughs> but I took my but I took my pants off and took put shorts on. So so oh we were God. sitting there with like shorts under the table, uh, and it was just so damn hot. And and we were like, we're not gonna leave until we've made it through these these red lines. This is like my night. This is like a nightmare healthcare hackathon, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's, it's exactly that. But now we actually have. This was early days. Now we actually have professionals who. who are doing. <laughs> now, now you at least make sure the AC is going to be on past uh, past two a.m. Yeah, that was. Fun. I feel like that could be fun though. I feel like most most of the things, most of the problems in healthcare could just be resolved if all if all three stakeholders just stayed in the room for like three hours. Yeah, <laughs> and hashed it out. Yeah. Well, as a VC, I feel contractually obligated to ask you about AI and just, you know, uh, are you guys using it at all yet? How do you think about the role it plays in the Allidade model going forward? We've been using predictive AI 
for yeah. quite some time. Um, also known as math. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so we've been doing that for a long time, and we we had a, a tuck-in acquisition of a company called Curia AI, yeah. which uh, powers a lot of our prediction models that I just mentioned. Right around like who's going to face difficult end of life conversations, who's going to face crashing into dialysis, who's going to be hospitalized, who's not going to show up for their doctor's appointment. Like we use that all the time, all day long, right? When it comes to generative AI, I think the the best application is going to be ambient scribing. That yeah. is going to be awesome, right? Where I can just talk to the patient out loud and be like, oh, okay, it looks like I'm seeing a little swelling in your in your left foot here, right? And when I put my finger in, it, it, it stays a little bit, um, a little bit of pitting edema there, right? And that then turns into a note at the end of the visit. Like, I think that's pretty close, actually. Totally. And that's it's amazing to see. I feel like for years awesome. that technology wasn't quite there. You know, it was a lot of people in the background. And then, you know, almost feels like overnight with the progress in some of these transcription models and summarization models of, like, it works. Um, yeah. It's, it's, uh, are, are you guys using that now in, in, in the clinics? We're, we're, we're not. We're looking into it. It's a little bit, I think, um, we're waiting to, to see uh, what emerges. We, we always ask folks, you know, if they had a magic wand, what's one policy change they'd make to improve healthcare in the U.S.? I feel like you don't need a magic wand. Like, you've been in all the, the rooms to... Yeah, you'll to, just do it. Yeah, it, to help make <laughs> these. But curious, you know, maybe, maybe you need a magic wand politically to get something through. Um, yeah. So, you know, curious what that change would be. A, a few years ago, it was actually the, gosh, it was the 2016 uh, presidential election where... Um, we convened uh, a group and, and Marty Gaynor and um, uh, and some folks um, got together and we talked about a competition policy for healthcare. And um, we wrote a piece for JAMA that summarized it that um, I can also make a link to it. But a lot of those actually, like that to me is the big policy push that we need that can be totally bipartisan. We're seeing some really interesting movements on that from from Indiana of all of all places. But it's not a it's not a Democrat or Republican thing. It's just like, look, if 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 we want to have a market based approach to healthcare, then we need to have a market, and we need to have competition, and we can't have you know people being big and bad, and and doing all sorts of anti competitive behaviors that are driving up costs and so more attention and we 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 have have like a bunch of prescriptions in there about what could happen maybe a third of them have actually been moving right and and they moved some of them during the previous administration some of during this administration but i think that's a that the the single most important thing that i think more attention should be paid to is competition in healthcare. all right one last question um so obviously right now in headlines are all these um, at-risk providers kind of getting acquired by different retailers, right? Walmart, ChenMed, we have CVS, and we have uh, Amazon, and I guess uh, Iora in some capacity. But, like, you know, obviously, this is is like a very different strategy than what you all are sort of approaching. But, like, do you have any, like, quick thoughts on, like, retail getting into this, like, at-risk primary care segment? And these acquisitions? I think they're fine, but I think they do more for the at-risk, the staff model at-risk providers than they do for the retailers. 
So I think one of the challenges of creating these uh, at-risk focused um, uh, entities, whether it's Oak Street or um, Village MD or whatever, is getting the patients, filling the clinics is the key to uh, success. And I think it, it, it makes some sense that if you're with a retailer who has a lot of foot traffic and you, whether you're Walmart or whatever, like you can fill those clinics faster and it helps those clinics get to profitability sooner. But I don't know that the converse, the idea that, oh, we'll have these clinics and it's going to drive more engagement or more traffic on the retail side. It's just, these are so slow and small in the scale of things that I don't, I don't see quite the opposite. Um, is that the working. pitch for the retailers that like, oh, we're going to drive more foot traffic? Or is it that we're diversifying revenue lines into an area that's like, you know, maybe more recession proof or, or whatever? Yeah. I mean, I think for Edna, part of it was like, this will help us with our MA performance, but it's just a small number, a portion of their lives are going to be in those, in those clinics, no matter how much they grow. So, and then, you know, the secret to success in, in value-based care is get the lives under management and then get savings. <laughs> and, and I think the, the question mark for me is, um, what, what ownership structure would help you get savings and get lives under management? Can you, you know, grow your payer contracts? Can you grow your practices? Can you grow your savings rates? Um, and, and that to me, at the end of the day, this all gets summarized, not as kind of the top line dollars under management number, but really what is your, uh, some people call it care margin, right? Like you've got the dollars under management, you got savings, what's left over, right? After you paid for your, your primary care. Um, and, and I think that's the key metric that people should be watching. Totally. Well, Farza, this has been a fascinating conversation. I feel like folks are going to want to, you know, uh, pull on all sorts of threads we discussed. We'll obviously link to a bunch of the stuff you mentioned, but what's the best way for folks to learn more about you and, and Alidade? So uh, most people, I'm sure, uh, appropriately will say, like, go to our website, right, Alidade.com. But there's two other things that I'll point you to. One is the ACO show. Woo! Woo! So a competing, <laughs> competing podcast, not competing, but complimentary podcast. We've got, I don't know, almost a couple hundred episodes now and it's it's it you really can can pick and choose and, and go deep on any aspect of value-based care that you want there and the other one is um my twitter i i still I, i'm not going to call it x uh my my twitter handle is farzad underscore md and i think i'm pretty open with my opinions there farzad's a great follow i can second that i've learned a lot from following you over the years Definitely one of the most interesting contributors on health tech Twitter. Some some folks here do memes. You actually do real content. And so, you know, much appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, seriously, Parsad, thanks so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you.